all the lights and the sounds, the scenes of Christmas, all the presents, all the pageantry. There's nothing wrong with those things. Nothing wrong with them at all. And I enjoy them as much as anybody. But I think you will agree, all that can distract us. All of this can distract us from the real essence of what we call Christmas. And when we strip those things away, and when we look closely, we listen carefully, we will understand that the advent of Jesus was a mission of rescue. It was a a mission of, of restoration, the most important one in history. A lot of you probably, like me, enjoy action movies and things like with Navy SEALs and special ops going in to rescue people that are held captive against all odds and facing all sorts of difficulty. Those are pretty neat stories, pretty enjoyable to read or watch. But this mission, this was a daring, daring, dramatic invasion of light and hope into a domain of darkness and despair. That's what Christmas is. It's a rescue mission. The most important one in history. The most important restoration mission in all of history. Because Adam and Eve, our first parents, they messed everything up pretty good, didn't they? When they sinned and they fell in the garden, from that point on, everything was altered. And the curse on them and the curse on the garden wasn't limited to them, and it wasn't limited to the garden. The curse on their sin was passed down generation to generation, and it permeated everything. We are saturated, even now, today. Every aspect of our existence is saturated by the result of their sin, by the curse of the garden. And as soon as Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, as soon as that happened, that mission of restoration was proclaimed and promised. We see that in Genesis 3.15. God's Word says this. This is after God calls Adam and Eve and the serpent to him, and he's pronouncing judgment, and he says this. I will put hostility between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent, to Satan. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That's the first proclamation of the gospel right there. The beginning of our story. The beginning of the story. And right in the middle of the most unthinkable tragedy of the fall of Adam and Eve, there is God saying, this is not how it will stay. This is how it will be, but it's not how it will stay. There will be a rescuer. There will be restoration. He will come. He'll make things right. And from that point on, just like a beautiful tapestry hand-woven, intentionally and carefully woven together. The Old Testament provides some very powerful pictures of the promised Messiah and His purpose, which was promised and proclaimed right there 
in the garden at the fall. In Genesis 22, for example, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, the promised son that he had waited for, the one that God promised to make Abram a great nation from, to bless all of the earth through the descendants of Isaac. Then he tells him to go to a mountain and to sacrifice him. So Abraham obeys. He does the unthinkable. He takes Isaac with him. They go to the mountain. They prepare the sacrifice. Isaac looks at what they have and Abraham and he says, well, I see the wood, I see the fire, but where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says, the Lord himself will provide the sacrifice. Then Isaac willingly allows his father to prepare him as the sacrifice. And as Abraham's hand is raised with the knife to fall on his precious promised son, the angel of the Lord, which is a pre-incarnate, pre-Bethlehem manifestation of Jesus, called to Abraham as he raises the knife and he keeps him from killing Isaac. He says, don't harm the boy. And he provides a ram instead. And in that passage, Abraham, as he told Isaac, the Lord himself will provide the lamb, there it was, sure enough, it's exactly what happened. And the one who provided it, catch this, the one who provided it would be the same divine person that would come as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. At the end of that chapter, we're told that the name Abraham gave that place means it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. No doubt pointing to Mount Calvary and what would happen there. Hallelujah. Then, almost 800 years later, recorded in Numbers 21, we see God telling Moses, who delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt, we see him telling Moses to make a bronze snake and hang it on a pole. This was in response to the Israelites being bitten by poisonous snakes in judgment as a result of their sin against God. But, if they would look at that bronze serpent on the pole in faith, trusting that God would heal them as he promised to do, if they would look at that, then they would surely be healed and they would live. Hmm, sound familiar? After all the pictures and all the prophecies, and there are hundreds of them, after all the wondering and the waiting He came. He came. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 tells us this. Galatians 4, 4 through 5, God's word. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters, by the way. That's the purpose of Christ's coming. Jesus came to restore 
what Adam and Eve ruined. Isn't that great? Aren't you glad for that? That the ruin of the fall didn't have to remain indefinitely. It wasn't just permanently there without any restoration of what had been ruined. That a plan was put in place at the very time, in fact, before Adam and Eve's fall, before creation even, a plan was put in place that when Adam and Eve fell, when they rebelled, when they sinned, when everything was cursed and ruined, it would not stay that way forever. Jesus came to restore what Adam and Eve ruined. There was hope for Eve. There was hope for all of us. And it came through another woman, Mary. That's what the angel told Joseph when he was unexpectedly given the news. When he had things develop around him and the situation change rapidly and what he had expected to be the case. When he heard that his betrothed was with child. That's not what he expected. That's not what he wanted to have happen, but that's what happened. And as he was thinking about what to do, and he decided to divorce her quietly to do away with the betrothal, avoid judgment, avoid shame, the angel came to him, and we looked at this as we started this series, and said, no, don't, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. The one that will be born of her is holy. He is the Son of God. Here's what the angel said to Joseph, Matthew 1, 21, and it points to what I just said, that Jesus came to restore what Adam and Eve ruined. It points to the very purpose, an unexpected purpose, but a very clear purpose of why Jesus came. Matthew 1, 21, she will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus came. The Messiah came to the manger so that he could go to the cross. That's why he came. That's why he came to a manger. That's why he was born. It wasn't to just see what it was like to be a human. It wasn't just to experience life on earth. It wasn't just to be able to say there's something that he had in common with us. It wasn't any of that. The purpose of the Messiah coming to the manger was so that he could use it as a pathway to the cross. And that was certainly a very unexpected purpose. That's why it took everybody off guard. Even though Scripture clearly pointed to a suffering Savior, people did not fully grasp what that meant and they didn't understand it. And they still had this image in their mind of a conquering warrior king, a conquering hero. And Jesus certainly conquered, and he certainly was a warrior, just not in the way people expected. And he didn't defeat the enemy that people expected him to defeat. Not even his closest followers expected or fully understood the fact that he came to the manger to go to the cross. All kinds of instances in his earthly ministry show Jesus having to explain again and again and again to his disciples why he came and where he was going to, to the cross, to suffer, to die. Peter is a prime example of the fact that not even his closest followers got it. They didn't understand it. They didn't expect for his purpose to be what it was. 
in Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23, after Peter did a great thing and said, when Jesus asked, who do people say I am? And they gave answers. And he, he looked at them. And he said, but you, you, my, my followers, who do you say that I am? Nobody spoke up. And then there's Peter. Gotta love Peter. Never shy to speak his mind. And he says, well, you're the Christ. You're the promised Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And on that truth, the rock of your statement, I'm going to build my church, Peter, and not even the gates of hell will be able to stand against it. That's great. Yay, Peter. Then, right after that, as Jesus begins to explain again, that they are about to go to Jerusalem where he will be arrested, tortured, and killed, Peter takes Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke and correct Jesus. And he says, no, no, Jesus, you're not going to do that. In other words, I'm not going to let you do that, Jesus. I know you may think that's what you're going to do. You may think that's your purpose, That's not the purpose I see for you, and I'm not going to let that come about. That's not going to happen. To which Jesus says, another very famous statement, Get behind me, Satan, because you do not have in mind the things of God, but only the things of man. You have your own personal agenda at mind, Peter. You're not thinking in line with the will of my Father who sent me. You're not in line with me. That's not my purpose to go and to set up a renewed kingdom of Israel, to restore the Jewish kingdom. I know that's what you want me to do, Peter, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to set up a new kingdom, a kingdom that will endure forever. I didn't come to set Israel free from Rome or any other nation. I came to set you free from sin and from Satan. What about you? What's your view of Jesus? What's your expectations of Jesus for your life, in your life? Do you understand and appreciate and embrace his real purpose? And has that changed your life? Is it still changing your life every day? What's your view of Jesus? What's your expectations of him? John three fourteen through 16 is another very clear passage that points to Jesus' sole purpose in coming. His one and only purpose, ultimately. Jesus says this to Nicodemus, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, which was a title of the fact that he was Messiah, title that he loved to use more than any other title, Jesus used that for himself. Just like that, just like that picture, which you know very well, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel, you know all about the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. Just as that happened, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. The Son of Man is the fulfillment of that picture. And here's why he must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave the ultimate gift giver. He gave His one and only Son, 
the ultimate gift. So that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. That was His purpose in coming. That's what makes Him, Jesus, the gift of Christmas. Friends, you probably already have opened some really spectacular gifts this morning. You're probably going to open up some more or begin opening them up when we leave here, when we go back home. But I hope you haven't gotten tired of hearing this truth. I hope you haven't gotten so deluded that you see any other gift as coming anywhere close to the gift that Jesus was and is. He is the gift of Christmas. There's no other gift that comes close. Have you received this ultimate gift in your life? Have you opened it, as it were? Has your name on it? Before the world began, this gift was prepared. And that's why He came. That was His purpose. He was born to die so that we could live. Born to die so that we could live. Are you thankful for that this morning? That's what makes Christmas merry. But, though that was His purpose in coming, and though that's what happened, the death of Jesus, and here's the really, really good news. I mean, this is like stand up and shout and go out and shout some more kind of good news. The death of Jesus was a semicolon in the story, not a period. You see, semicolons are put where you could end, you could end the sentence right there. You could end the statement and it would be fine to end it, but you don't end it. You go on, you say more, there's more to be said. There's something additional to say. That's the purpose a semicolon serves. And in the great, great redemption story, the death of Jesus was just a semicolon, church. It wasn't a period. It wasn't a period. Are you thankful for that this morning? Romans 4.25 tells us this. He, Jesus, this is from the NLT, by the way. He was handed over to die, that was his purpose in coming, because of our sins. Our sins, yours and mine, had put him there on the cross. He had to go to the cross to restore, to redeem what Adam and Eve ruined and what they passed on. Their ruin was passed on to every single human being. By birth and by choice, we are partakers in Adam and Eve's fall. So he was handed over to die because of our sins. Not just their sins, not just Adam and Eve's, our sins. But here's the the semicolon part. And he was raised to life to make us right with God. The Apostle Paul expands on that that truth and and that premise. 1 Corinthians 15, 21-22, also from the NLT, says this. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, Adam, the first Adam, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, the second Adam, Jesus. 
Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. You see, without Easter, without the reality of Easter, Christmas is just another holiday. But because Jesus came to the manger to go to the cross, and because He didn't stay on the cross, because of Easter, Easter makes Christmas that much more glorious. Jesus came in humble circumstances. Jesus came to a poor family. He wasn't even born in a proper place. He was born in a cave, and he was placed in a stone manger, a feeding trough, a place to also securely keep special sheep. And he was placed in swaddling cloths in that manger. Well, 33 years after being wrapped in swaddling cloths in the manger, he was wrapped in burial cloths in the grave. And as angels announced his birth, they also announced his resurrection. And when he left those grave cloths behind, he made it possible for us, for you and me, to leave death and the grave behind too. Praise God. When Jesus left those burial cloths behind, He made it possible for us to leave the grave and death behind too. And we just were reminded of that just last week when we celebrated the life of our brother, David Lilly. See, he got to leave death and the grave behind too. Because he put his faith and trust in the risen Savior, the one who made the first Christmas what it was, but went to the cross. David Lilly looked at that cross and said, that's what I need. I'm going to put my faith and trust in the one who went to the cross. I'm going to believe he didn't stay on the cross. He didn't stay in the grave. He rose, and because he rose, so can I. And so David Lilly is praising the one who came and who was born, the one who died, the one who rose again and ascended, and who is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and me. David is with him now, celebrating Christmas Day with him. Is that going to be your story as well? Have you committed your life to the one who came to give you life? If so, then you get to leave the grave behind too at some point. Your story won't end with death. That won't be the period of your story. It'll just be the semicolon. You see, that's the ultimate purpose of Christmas, church. Resurrection. That's the ultimate purpose of Christ's coming. It should not have been as unexpected as it was, but it will always be undeserved. It will always be undeserved. May we never get over that fact. May we never get over the fact that all that Christ came to do for us will never be deserved. But may it also be something that triggers a constant response. May we live for Him in response to all that He did for us. And not just every Christmas, 
but every single day. Amen? Amen. Sweet little Jesus boy, they made you be born in a manger. little holy child we didn't know who you were didn't know you'd come to save us Lord to take our sins away our eyes were blind We could not see. We didn't know who you were. Long time ago, Father, I pray that 
you would help us to clearly see who your son is, what he came to do, why we will constantly need him. And more than that, Father, help us to not just say thank you, not just to sing songs of praise and thanks. Help us by the Spirit that you have given us, your Spirit. Help us to live in response to who your Son is, to what he came to do, to what he has made true of us and possible for us. Not just that he died on the cross to pay in full our sin debt, but that he also rose victorious from the grave, defeating death and extending that victory to us, allowing us to share in his victory forever. May we live for him and for you, the one that sent him, not just at Christmas, every day. Thank you for Christmas. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.